To be unkind is very easy in, in today's food system. To be destructive to a rainforest is very simple in today's food system. To be abusive to an animal is second nature in today's food system. We've got to unwind that. And that's a process of building up a lot of infrastructure and changing a lot of minds, maybe even changing some laws that you know we're now just beginning to do. Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. Hey friends, great to be here with you. I'm your host, Simon Hill. I'm a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist with an undergraduate science degree and a master's in the science of human nutrition. Today's episode is with Josh Tetrick, the CEO and founder of Eat Just, a food tech company with a mission to build a healthier, safer, and more sustainable food system in our lifetimes. I first came across Eat Just when I was in the States and tried their animal-free scrambled egg product made from mung beans, which is now the fastest growing egg product in America. Then more recently, I became further interested in their work after they became the first company in the world to sell cultivated meat, following regulatory approval in Singapore a moment that could well go down in history as the beginning of a new era where humans changed the way they conceptually thought about meat, no longer from living animals, but instead produced from animal cells without slaughter and with less environmental impact. What is cultivated meat? Where is this industry up to? What could the future of meat look like? In this exchange, we discuss all of that and more. Please enjoy, and I'll catch you on the other side. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. 
and the optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Josh Tetrick, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. Been waiting for this one. So, uh, super excited to kind of um, get to to learn about your story today and the mission of, of, of Eat Just. Both you and and the company being a, a real leader in what is a, a rapidly developing and very exciting category of, of alternative proteins, both plant based and, and cultivated. I think the the best way to approach this conversation is to use your personal story as a bit of a, a scaffold. And I know that uh, your time working in Africa with nonprofits proved to be quite a pivotal sort of time in, in, in your life in terms of the genesis of everything that you're doing today. But if we take a little step back from there, how does a, a kid from Alabama that's interested in, mm. in, in football and, and perhaps becoming an NFL player end up in Africa working with these nonprofit organizations, helping kids sort of find their feet? Yeah, in, interested interested in football is definitely an uh, understatement, Simon. That that's it was just an obsession. That that's all I cared about. It's all I talked about. I'd wake up at two in the morning to get an extra an extra plyometric session in. Um, I I thought um, my my way out of my situation was to be a professional football player. So. Um, and when you grow up in Alabama, um, you're very encouraged to, to think like that. Um, I played running back, played linebacker, and um, I played a, a little bit of college football at, at West Virginia. And um, pretty uh, quickly after I got there, I realized that I wasn't going to be good enough to play, uh, play in the NFL. And I needed a place put myself I need the place to put my energy to put my focus to put my life um, and um, the next step was thrown into school I had never really done well in school I, I graduated um, at the very bottom of my class in high school um, but I threw all the energy in academics transferred to Cornell um, and um, Eventually, uh, eventually spent uh, a little bit of time in, in Africa working with a handful of nonprofits, Liberian government, the United Nations. Um, and I ended up feeling pretty frustrated by the experience because you're there because you want to do good. But it was the, the change that I was wanting was happening um, pretty slow. Um and I think that can be the nature of a lot of nonprofits. That can be the nature of a lot of international institutions. And when I was in South Africa, I read a book called Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid. And it's written by a guy named C.K. Prahlad. And the premise of the book is that um, the world's most urgent problems can be solved by capitalism. And at the time, I wasn't 
pro-capitalism or anti-capitalism. I was just pro getting shit done. Um, and I thought it was a really interesting take on it, that this system called capitalism that can simultaneously cause a lot of pain in the world and a lot of good in the world is just a force that you can use. And I, um, I, I decided that, you know, eventually I want to throw my life in a something that is around that. And then um, the final stage in this chapter is I was lucky enough to have a, a best friend named Josh Bach, who uh, also co-founded the company with me. And he was always in my ear about what's on my plate and why that chicken is on my plate. Why do I profess to be the kind of human being that I say that I am, but I keep eating in the way that I am. Um, so he was always very, um, he was always causing me to confront that disconnect. Um, and it was a little bit over nine and a half years ago. He, he finally pushed me to, uh, to make this thing happen. So it was sort of the, the culmination of, of that book, Fortune uh, at the Bottom of the Pyramid, that saw you to kind of change your perspective and, and, and see capitalism as the, the way to help work through some of the world's greatest problems. And then your friend, which finally sees you kind of zoom in on the food system. When you're, when you're at, at that sort of point, in this journey and you're researching the food system, where do you start to kind of try and unpack mm. that problem mm. and, and, and look at here's our current food system, you know, in, in its current form here, here are the problems and here, here is where I should be focusing my attention mm. in order to, to address that problem through business. Well, uh, l- lucky for me, um, my best friend really narrowed my focus to, um, the meat that we consume, the meat, eggs, and milk that we consume. So I got really focused pretty quick. Um, and we, we asked a lot of questions. I asked a lot of questions about what does it mean to serve and eat chicken? What does it mean to serve and eat eggs? And I'll, I'll use eggs as an example because that's the first product that we started with. Mm-hmm. Um, two trillion eggs were laid last year. Um, well over 98% of all those eggs were laid in contraptions called battery cages. Um, and um, the chicken live in those cage, live in those cages for about two years. They're fed lots of soy and corn that requires lots of rainforest to be destroyed. Ultimately, then they lay the eggs roughly one a day. About 53% of the cost of every single egg comes from the feed consumed um, by the, by the chicken. Um, and the more I asked questions, the more I got to the heart of what we're actually talking about when we mean the egg, the more I was lit up to do something about it. And then I figured, you know, if, if the egg industry is that, um, if that kind of stuff is going on in the industry, what else is going on in the broiler industry? What else is going on in the pork industry? And again, having a best friend and Josh, uh, Balk, he's the, the head of animal protection at Humane State United States. He was all, always on the other end of, of a phone or right next to me telling me all about it. Mm-hmm. So the focus got was right down to the meat we eat, intensive animal agriculture, factory farming, whatever label you want to put at, on it that can kind of disguise what it actually is. It's billions of animals being slaughtered in ways that don't align our values in a way that's really harmful to the environment that we eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, but, you know, I, I try to penetrate that and... Um, and 
And that's, that's where the energy went. Mm-hmm. And that kind of initial idea is back 2011. Is that, is that the sort of right time period? That's right. Yeah. For about um, maybe 20 years before that, um, Josh had, had been trying to open up my eyes to what's going on, but it, it took, took about 20 years, me reading that, that book mm-hmm. and me being, you know, sort of lost in my own life about what the hell I'm going to do. I didn't really, mm-hmm. I didn't, um, I didn't have any good options. I had $3,000 in my bank account. I had a couch that my ex-girlfriend Jill was letting me sleep on. So I was looking for a place to, to put my energy. Mm-hmm. So I think something that's really interesting here is, is just this idea of having an idea like what you had back in 2011 and then having the courage to act on that. And often I'll have conversations with people who, who have an idea, but for whatever reason, just can't act on it, whether they talk themselves out of it or their friends and family do. What gave you the confidence and perhaps the, the fearlessness to, to take action? Was it, was it simply perhaps being naive to the challenge at hand? Or do you, mm-hmm. do you feel that you were so called by this underlying purpose of what you wanted to do that, you know, not giving it a go wasn't an option. Mm. I think, uh, I think a few things were going on. Um, one is I didn't have any other really good viable options. That was one that helped, um, to not, mm. you know, have a nice cushy job that made an easy excuse not to do it. Second is, um, I was looking for my next, I want to play in the NFL way to orient my life. Um, that really helped direct me, even though I was never good enough to play in the NFL, having that kind of direction and organizing my life around that was, was how I, um, and I was able to, 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 to get to a lot of places. And then, then the third thing is I want to, I want to live in a world um, with a lot less harm. I want to, I want to live in a world in which we don't feel like we need to slaughter and, and abuse other animals just to have breakfast. Mm-hmm. I want to live in a, in a different kind of world. Um, and some, some mixture of those three things was going, was going on. Um, and, you know, as an accelerator, all of it, I have this guy, Josh, who just won't let up. He just will not let up in pushing me towards doing it. So any escape hatch I tried to take, um, he was there to assist in, in, in closing up. But I, you know, I guess I really, I, I went to, I went to university of Michigan law school and a lot of folks that I went to, to law school with, um, uh, had been really successful in their legal careers. And it, it is difficult. I think when you get used to a, a certain, salary, a certain house, a certain car to imagine doing something that you, that means you potentially could lose all of that. So again, an advantage I had is I didn't have any of it. I had $3,000 my bank account. I had my ex-girlfriend's couch. So, you know, the deck was pretty clear for me. And I, I think maybe mm-hmm. that, that helped a little bit. And you mentioned before that you were obsessed with football. So when you sort of came to the realization that you wouldn't go on to, to make the NFL and, and pursue that as your career. I'm, 
I'm assuming that perhaps friends around you or family, was there some expectations that Josh was going to be hmm. a professional footballer at any time? And and as a result of that, did did you sort of feel in any way that not going on to kind of realize that dream was a failure at that stage? I, um, it was really hard for me initially because my, my, my whole sense of self, my identity, um, was that what I, what I did during the day, how I trained, how I ate, what I talked about, what, you know, I meet a new person. Who are you? What do you do? That was my answer. Right. Mm -hmm. And then that's gone. Um, and you know, I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure a lot of my friends, whether they told me to my face or not, probably, you know, might have might have doubted my my dream to play in the NFL. So you know, it's a little bit hard to tell them that, uh, you know that that wasn't going to be the wasn't going to be the deal for me. It was pretty obvious that when I, once I got to West Virginia that I wasn't going to be able to play in the NFL because a lot of the a lot of the uh, the players that um, were clearly better than me um, were not getting drafted into the NFL. So you sort of quickly reason it. Well, if someone's a lot better than you, and they're not getting drafted, probably low probability that you're going to get drafted. But yeah, but it was hard because your your identity that you've had for so long is gone. How you've animated your life for so long is gone, and um, you know you feel a bit rootless, and that uh, that was hard. So now it's 2011, and and you've discovered this kind of new purpose. There's a new identity building and you're inspired to go down this track of, of setting up a business. Can you remember, recall, if you sort of reflect back, what was the plant-based alternative protein space mm -hmm. like back in, in, in 2011? What did the landscape look like back then and, and who were the kind of big players at the time? Um. I think Tofurky was the biggest back in 2011. So Tofurky was doing its thing, continues to do its thing. Silk was out there with plant-based milk. Um, uh, but there was a lot of tofu scramble and black bean burgers being consumed um, mm -hmm. by, by people who wanted to you know, not consume animal products. But alternative protein as a category wasn't a thing. I was just talking to my mm -hmm. team about this. We, we just moved into new headquarters and a, a lot of people were just seeing each other for the first time after the pandemic. And for, for most of them, alternative protein has always been a thing. But back in 2011, it wasn't a multi-billion dollar category. It was some black bean burgers and the work of Tofurky and maybe some tofu scramble. And that, that's about it. Um, so you know, it's one thing trying to convince someone now that an egg from a plant makes sense or to make meat from a cell makes sense. But in 2011, that was a little bit, that was a little bit more mm -hmm. challenging. People mm -hmm. just didn't understand the, the urgency of, of the need of the health need of the, of the climate need. Um, so it was an industry. It just was a, it was a couple of companies doing, doing some nice things, but, um, not, not what it could be. What do you think is the, or has been the, the major drivers of the growth over the, the past 10 years, 10, 11 years that you've been 
involved yeah. in it? Is it the the raised awareness about the effects of food on the environment? Is it health? What, what do you think is sort of seeing investors, I guess, become more and more interested in backing these different startups and, and therefore seeing more of these products in the market? Yeah, I think um, I was reading a um, an article a little bit about how big change happens and was talking about um, uh, some of the the big campaigns to, to deal with uh, TB, tuberculosis, and other diseases. And um, it reminded me of kind of the path of alternative protein in that there's not a, a single thing. It's, it's a combination of um, changing consumer preferences, growing awareness of consumers about health and planet. That comes from books. Um, I don't know if there were podcasts back in 2011, but um, uh, interviews, documentaries, other influencers talking about it. It comes from advances in technology, whether that's fermentation or extrusion or cell culture, some of the things we, we might talk about mm-hmm. uh, talk about later. Um, it comes from, I think, more of an openness of the investor community to say, what is that next significant industry that could change things? Um, and it comes from a handful of people just saying they want to make it happen. In, in driving it and willing it to to happen, I sh- shouldn't say a handful of people. M- many more than a handful of people driving it and saying they want it. So I think it's a combination of all these things going on. Um, and I do think if there's a there's a documentary who killed the electric car about how you know the first version of electric car died off, and I I think timing is a really important component to the growth of alternative protein. I don't think this could have worked in 2001. I think the, I think the U S the, the planet was at a particular period of time and better understanding climate change, understanding a little bit more the consequences of being so, um, uh, so rough with animals, a little bit more awareness around health. Um, the capital raising environment was at a different stage that these things fed on themselves and gave the industry an opportunity to do what the electric car industry didn't do back in the day, which is to say thrive. When you look at the, the, the food system as it is, or has it been, as it has been say over the last 50 to 70 odd years and the way animals are treated and the various inefficiencies that have existed within that food system. Do you feel that, that this has just been a, a sort of slow burn that snuck up on us without decision makers sort of taking pause and questioning the system or has it just been humans kind of doing the best with what they knew at the time? Mm. You know, I think I've changed my perspective on this. So when I started the company, I co-founded the company initially. Um, I thought, um, I thought a lot of people were eating meat and eggs and meat companies were wrong and evil and just really had the wrong intentions. Um, but, you know, then I reflect a little bit more on how I, I grew up. I, I grew up in Alabama eating chicken wings um, for dinner almost every night, eating Burger King chicken sandwiches. And um, I, 
I wasn't trying to do anything harmful to animals. I, I love animals. I just, just wasn't aware. And I actually think may, many of the biggest meat companies that I've come to know, um, and I think my younger self would be surprised that my, my version of myself is saying this today, but I've come to know a lot of the executives that work at the world's biggest meat companies. At the end of the day, they're trying to figure out a way to make more money selling more food. Mm. And as of right now, they don't think there's a better way to make more money selling more food. And I, I really, I really do think that um, there's something to this idea of that's just what was available at the time. That's how we thought it made sense to eat eggs for breakfast and eat chicken and beef and pork. Um, but thankfully for all of us, times change. And this goes back, Simon, I think, to this idea of, of capitalism, that capitalism in and of itself is not a kind system or an evil system. It's a system of doing shit fast. Mm-hmm. And if you have the right business model, if you have the right intention behind it, whether you're a big meat company or a young company like ours, you can do things that are, are a little bit more a little bit more meaningful. So I, I definitely judge people a lot less including me companies today than, than I used to. Um, because I think we've, we've created a food system that has made it remarkably easy to do unkind things. To be unkind is very easy in, in today's food system. To be destructive to a rainforest is very simple in today's food system. To be, to, to be abusive to an animal is second nature in today's food system, you know, and, um, we've got to unwind that. And that's a process of building up a lot of infrastructure and changing a lot of minds, maybe even changing some laws, um, that, that, uh, you know, we're now just beginning to do. What's at stake here? If we, if we weren't to, to evolve the food system and it continued to just exist. And I know it is evolving and there are changes happening, but let's just say, for example, that the, the, the growth of plant-based uh, proteins and cultivated meat did not come to fruition. What does that mean in terms of environment, in terms of health, all of these issues we're talking yeah. about? Well, I think it, it starts off at the simplest possible level with a world that has a lot more harm taking place in it. Um, it's a, to me, it's a, it's a sadder looking, uh, world, but let's, let's start with, um, uh, a metaphor of, let's say your uh, alien visitors and you're looking over the planet earth. And, um, you don't find many livable planets in, um, in galaxies that you're, even though there are hundreds of billions of planets out there, you, you don't find a lot of livable ones. You found this one and you're trying to get a sense of what these people down there are doing to this, this planet that they have. Um, and you find out that about a third of their ice free lands, about a third of the planet, um, is being used to plant soy and corn for something. And you're really interested. Maybe you think maybe it's soy and corn to feed the people. And then you dig a little bit deeper and using your alien analytics to figure it out. And it turns out that it's soy and corn 
to feed the animals that they're eating. And it turns out that it's not just planted anywhere, but they had to direct bulldozers to knock down forests to plant that soy and corn. You would think those people are pretty bizarre to use their, their planet in that way. And one of the consequences, if we continue doing what we're doing right now, is really a world, with, a world without forests. Um, a world where we say we choose a field of chicken feed over hundreds of millions of acres of biodiverse rainforest with species we've never even seen before with, you know, the ability to pull in carbon from the atmosphere. So that's, that's one. The second kind of world, a giant farm, um, you know, do we want, do we want a chicken farm, um, and you know, uh, fields of chicken, uh, feed or, or do we want, do we want something else? Second thing, and the United Nations Environmental Program said this recently, that the number one cause of zoonotic disease is increasing demand for animal protein. Now, the problem with that statement in terms of communication is very few people even know what the term zoonotic disease even means. So it kind of, kind of get lost on it. Zoonotic disease just means a disease that jumps from a non-human animal like a chicken to a human animal like me and you because of things we do. It's not by accident. Things we do include putting animals in tiny spaces. Um, things we do, including stacking animals on top of each other at wet markets. And whether you're talking about COVID-19 or whether you're talking about avian flu or whether you're talking about a number of other um a number of other zoonotic diseases, we've seen what one in COVID-19 can do. Avian flu is currently experiencing yet another outbreak today in the United States as we have this conversation. Millions of birds are being slaughtered because avian flu is spreading. Um, a rational, logical person would think that will continue. Third thing, um, more than all the trains, buses, um, uh, cars that we use, Eating animals contributes even more to climate change. It does that because of the destruction of forests. Um, it, um, it does that because of the energy-intensive operations inherent in raising chickens and beef and pigs for our food. So if we really care about addressing climate change, and the IPCC in their most recent report for the first time called um, moving to plant-based and cultivated meat as a transformative way to mitigate climate uh, change. And then the fourth, which I um, stopped talking about for a bit because I didn't think enough people got it, but I'm done not talking about it because it's a thing that actually um, is, is particularly meaningful for me is I don't think we need to kill another living thing in order to nourish ourselves. I just don't think it's, it's necessary. Um, and then, and then uh, the, the last thing is it's pretty established science. And I know that uh, you cover this on a, a regular basis. Um, Ansel Keys established it way back in the day that um, uh, saturated fat, dietary cholesterol um, increases one's, risk of cardiovascular disease. It's not complicated. Uh, we don't need any new studies that say it. We've known it for, for as, long as, as long as that first study came out. Um, in a world in which there are fewer people dying of heart disease, it seems like a, a, pretty, a pretty good world to me. So I'd, I'd like to see that happen also. Yeah. 
And I, I have a few questions about cultivated meat that maybe we can come back to later and, and the sort of nutritional properties of that. I've had a, a number of people ask me about that. So I thought I would throw yeah. that your way. And um, yeah. so, so with all of that in mind, is the, the mission of Eat Just to address all of these problems by creating food products that are better for the planet, better for the animals, et cetera, but are just as delicious and allow people to, to still derive the same amount of joy out of their food? Is that, is that sort of at the core of what you're doing? Yeah, we, um, we have um, – uh, we just moved in this new uh, – uh, HQ lab that we're in this in the East Bay in San Francisco area and outside our lab, the cultivated meat lab, it says, um, our goal, the most consumed meat is cultivated meat and outside our just egg lab, which is a, um, a plant-based egg that we make. Um, it says the most consumed egg is from a plant. So our goal is that for the vast majority of meat consumed in the world doesn't require the slaughter of a single animal. And on the egg side, the most ubiquitous and most consumed egg comes from a plant. The only way either of those two things has any chance of ever happening anytime in our lifetime is if we make it easier for people to consume that than what they're currently consuming. The only way you make it easier, it needs to taste as good or better. It needs to make them feel better about what they're consuming and feeling is both an emotional feeling and also a physical well-being substance substantively feeling better element and it needs to be more cost effective if it doesn't taste as good or better if it doesn't make someone feel better and if it's not more cost effective we don't think those two those two things are going to happen so we're investing many tens of millions of dollars um, across 14 different scientific uh, disciplines to see about increasing the probability of that happening, knowing that um, it is not straightforward, it is not easy, it is not anywhere close to certain, but it's still worth giving it a go. Can you give us a bit of a, an insight into uh, behind the, the sort of uh, closed walls or within the, the four walls of, of Eat Just, you just mentioned there are two different labs, but how big is, is the organization? I mean, you're, you're a very uh, charismatic, laid-back leader, but this is a very big operation and you've raised what, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars at, at this point. What are we talking? When you, when you walk into your, your current facility setup, what does mm. it look like? How many staff are there? What departments and you know, what is required to kind of do what you're doing right now? So if, um, if any of your listeners came by 300 Wind River in Alameda, it's a facility north of 100,000 square feet. We have uh, three floors. I'm on the third floor right now. On the first and second, it's all labs. We have an analytical lab, a product development lab, a shelf life lab, a self cell culture lab, a bioprocessing lab. Um, we have 250 um, uh, folks that work for the company as a percentage. Most are on the research and development side. Uh, we have biochemists, we have tissue engineers, we have molecular biologists, we have analytical chemists, we have Michelin star chefs, we have food scientists. Um, all of them occupy floors uh, one, one and two. Um, in these labs, you'll find folks isolating cells, formulating media, the nutrients to feed the cells. 
Um, you'll see people testing out new versions of, uh, of, of just egg. You'll see people coming in from outside to test our products and our, our sensory lab that we, we recently built also. And then if you exited 300 wind river, we're at, you just walk right across the street. You would see our new pilot plant, which is being constructed, which is going to be half making meat and half making egg. The vessels to make meat are called a bioreactor, and our process for making eggs separates protein from the bean called the mung bean. Um, all of this is is happening uh, is happening uh, every day. Um, we've got to figure out a way for someone who's developing a cell line to work well with the chef. Um, we've got to realize that just because the thing is working in the lab doesn't mean a whole lot. We've got to figure out a way to scale it. That was a big lesson that we learned with Just Egg. I got all excited when I first saw the first plant scrambling in the lab, and I thought we were going to launch it a few months later. And then three and a half years later, we finally launched it. So we've taken a lot of those lessons and and applied it to our our work on cultivated meat. So we think a lot here about not just how do you make it, but how do you scale it? And by scale, meaning – how do you make it so that tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people can access it at a reasonable at a reasonable price? Um, and um, you know, it's my job to try to try to organize this thing and and give people a little bit of direction and uh, push them past sometimes the place that they think they're capable of. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. 
You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Is there a, a Singapore facility as well or is that something that you're kind of working yeah. on for the future? Yeah, so we think think of our company as we have the the research and development that's all happening in in Alameda uh, in the East Bay in San Francisco, and then we have and are building larger manufacturing facilities. So in Western Minnesota, we um, have a large scale protein separation facility that makes a key ingredient that goes into Just Egg. Um, Appleton's this tiny little town in Western Minnesota. We're the largest employer there. Seventy percent of Appleton. Um, uh, voted for uh, voted for um, uh, um, Donald Trump to give you a sense of how politically it's different than where we are in the Bay Area. Um, we have 50 people working there separating protein. Um, that facility runs seven days a week, uh, 24-7. Uh, and we're building two facilities in Singapore, one to make just egg and then one to cultivate our, our meat. Um, and uh, it... Uh, it's a, it's this combination of the basic R and D product development, and then the manufacturing to make sure that it gets out to to millions of people. And if one of those three is neglected, we're out of business. Mm. So, from from your seat right now, and and reflecting back in two thousand and eleven, did you mm. did you realize the size of the project that you were taking on? I, um, I had no idea that it would require so many different disciplines. That was something I really, um, I, I didn't understand. I thought, so we, the, the company started with a question of, can we find a plant to make an egg? Mm -hmm. That was our founding question. And there are 400,000 species of plants all over the world. And who knows if one of them can actually make an egg. And specifically what we're asking is, can we identify a protein within a plant that will gel at a similar time and temperature as chicken egg protein? Gel, which is a fancy food term for scramble. Um, and I thought, you know, maybe we'll hire one protein biochemist. We'll hire one chef. They'll figure out a way to make it. You know, we'll put it in a bottle and we'll sell it. And every week, month, you realize that there's some gap in knowledge that requires another discipline. We don't know enough about the analytics of the bean, so we need an analytical chemist. We don't understand enough about how to scale it up, so we need a food engineer. We don't understand enough about how ultimately to separate the proteins. So we need someone who's an expert in that. Um, I never thought it would cost so much money. Uh, we've, we've raised well north of a half a billion dollars since the, the day that we started from sovereign wealth funds to entrepreneurs to early stage um, uh, venture capital funds in the Bay Area. So I, I never thought it would be, um, it would, it would uh, require this much capital to happen. 
Um, and uh, I, I never realized that just because you can do something in the lab doesn't mean at all you can do it at scale. Um, but I always thought that we were going to figure this stuff out. Mm. Um, I did always, I did always think that. And so you started, I believe with mayonnaise and a few other products, were they kind of just byproducts of that endeavor that you just mentioned there to, to kind of work out what is the the best plant-based ingredients to make these plant-based scrambled eggs? Well, um, they were really, they were really byproducts of not being able to find the bean that makes an egg. So we just couldn't find it. So it was, it was, um, something that we wanted to do in the meantime until we figured out how to do the thing. We really started the company to get after. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, we had learned a lot about how eggs work in the context of food products. So of the 2 trillion eggs that are laid every single year, about a third of them are used as ingredients. Sweet mayonnaise, we don't realize that an egg is an emulsifier, bringing oil and water together in the mayonnaise. We eat a muffin. We don't realize the egg is causing the muffin to rise or aerate. We eat pasta, and the egg is a binder. So those are a little bit easier to do than finding something that scrambles in the pan. So it was our way of doing something as we figured out a way to do that first big product, an egg that uh, is made from a plant that someone could pour in a pan. And at the beginning, your company, it was called Beyond Eggs, right? Yeah, the original name of the company back in 2011 was Beyond Eggs. Um, that, that name was suggested by uh, my, uh, my best friend and, and co-founder, uh, Josh Ball. Did that ever ruffle any kind of feathers with, with uh, Beyond Burger at all? Well, when, when we were called Beyond Eggs... Um, Beyond Meat wasn't Beyond Meat. It was called Savage River Farms. Mm, so not a lot of people know that. Yeah. So yeah. So Savage River Farms, um, and um, we we uh, eventually uh, you know realized that that name is not for us, and and they they realized the name is for them. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it uh, worked out for the both of us. Do you recall back then in in 2011 when you were? setting this up and and you had this kind of uh pursuit of of finding a plant-based egg formulation that would work do you remember what your pitch was like Mm -hmm. to to investors then and was it hard to kind of sell this idea to investors back in in 2011 yeah i'll maybe just to make it easier i'll let's I'll, i'll imagine simon you're you're an early stage investor so we're back in back in 2011 alternative proteins on industry um, really the first major investor I sat down with was Coastal Ventures, a guy named Samir Cole, who's still, still there. Um, he's our, he's our first investor. So I sat down with Samir and, um, I said at that time it was about 1.4 trillion, 1.4 trillion eggs were laid in 2011. Um, 99% of them come from places that you wouldn't be proud to show your kids. Um, the chickens require a lot of soy and corn, which requires a lot of land and water. And chicken egg prices go up or down, often depending on whether feed prices are going up and down. So it's not the most stable food product. 
you end up having a lot of food safety issues like salmonella or avian flu. There's got to be a way to do this better. There's got to be a way to figure out how to make a better version of an egg, one that is healthier, less saturated fat, free of dietary cholesterol, that tastes better, that's much more sustainable, where we could find a path to making it more cost-effective. And we've, we want to find plants to do it. We think using plant-based materials could be a more effective way to do it. And in the same way technologies um, overturn lots of industries, we want to do the same thing to intensive animal agriculture, but we want to start with the egg and then go from there. Um, that was pretty much the pitch. Um, for some reason, they didn't, uh, they didn't laugh me out of their office and they wrote a half a million dollar check. Um, and I'm sure they would have said that check was an absolute bet. It's not like, uh, it was, um, you know, they were, they, they, they probably, um, thought there was a very high probability that half a million dollars was going to be lost. Mm-hmm. But early stage VCs take a lot of bets and every once and again, um, they'll, they'll get a hit. But then I use that half a million dollars to get off my ex-girlfriend's couch and, and, and get this thing rolling. Mm-hmm. Get the wheels in motion. Yeah. And, and then it took a few years and you ended up, uh, going through some of those earlier product iterations and then you you brought out just egg how how's it been since since that has entered the market have the the sales and the and the feedback from consumers been sort of as you expected or hopeful yeah just to show show how off expectations could be so i thought within a year or so we'd rela- we'd release truly a plant-based egg um, and it wasn't until, uh, late 2018 that we launched just egg and retail. Um, so pretty much everything was harder than I thought it was harder to find the protein that scrambled like an egg than I thought it was harder to separate out the protein than I thought it was harder to figure out a way to, to deal with quality issues. than I thought it was harder to raise the capital to make it happen than I thought. Um, but then it, um, got out in retail um, and it was what we call version one, which was good in that it would scramble. So you'd pour it in the pan and it would gel at a similar time and temperature. So if, if, if you and I were um, hanging out in the kitchen, Simon, and I was, you know, making some breakfast for you, you would look at, at it and you might be pretty impressed that it's looking like an egg in the pan. Problem is when you taste it, um, because the first version was very, very beany. Um, and if you let it, it's mung bean. And when you, and when you let it sit, you know, more than 30 seconds, it would get very mealy. Um, so it was good that we launched it. The first retail partner was a a retailer called Hy-Vee, um, which has a lot of stores, stores in Iowa. Ironically, it's one of the biggest egg producing States in the U S. Um, and then, um, we, we knew we didn't want version one out on the market too long because we didn't think it was that good. And we, we put a lot of energy into what we call version two, which is we developed a a better way of separating the protein from the bean. So this mung bean, I should say a bit about it has been in the world's food system for over 4,000 years. Um, We didn't invent the mung bean. No one, you know, invented the mung bean. It's been around for a long time. Um, in India, it's, um, known as dal, um, the dish that 
the mung bean is, is uh, transformed into. But it turns out there's a protein in the mung bean, a certain kind of storage protein, that when you remove it in a certain way, scrambles like an egg. So we developed a better way to remove that protein, and then we launched version two, and then things really started to tick. Um, we started to get more points of distribution, Whole Foods, Walmart, Kroger, Safeway, Publix. Um, and today, um, the category of plant-based egg, which didn't exist just a handful of years ago, is the fastest growing category in alternative protein for the second year in a row. Um, we just crossed our 250 millionth egg from a plant sold. Uh, we do many tens of millions of dollars in sales. We're in 42,000 points of distribution. Every retailer of note, except for um, Trader Joe's in the United States, carries it. Almost all of them right where the eggs are sold. So if you go into your local grocery store, go to where the eggs are sold, you'll most likely see uh, Just Egg there. Um, but it's not enough, obviously. Um, it's enough to, to build a nice company. But, you know, we're trying to go for something a little bit more. I've got a few questions about the egg industry, which we might come to. And you sort of alluded to the fact that your, I guess, views of, of industry have evolved over time. So I'd be interested to, to hear from you a little further on that. But I have a, a, a friend, uh, Doug Evans, who was the founder of Juicero. I'm not sure if you know the story of Juicero. But, um, I, 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 know, he, I know Doug too. Yeah, he's been on the show and I've spent a lot of time with him in California and uh, in hearing his story, you know, and you'd be familiar with it, Bloom, Bloomberg went pretty hard on, on him and he seemed to have quite a, quite a target on his back after he'd raised a lot of money and, uh, you know, in many ways the, the Bloomberg press sort of saw the end of, of Juicero and, and I know that you were kind of on the end of some similar sort of treatment from Bloomberg and there was various accusations and an investigation and uh, it was shown that those accusations were not sort of founded uh, and there was no wrongdoing. But I'm sort of interested from your perspective in that whole experience and being the CEO of this company that's raised a lot of money, there's negative press, were they within their right to publish what they they did, and and how did you cope with that as a young CEO and and all of the stress that that no doubt brought into your life while you're trying to to build mm. this company? Yeah, and this was um, this was in 2017. So this was before we launched Just Egg. Um, so I think uh, a, a few things to say about it. So. One is, um, I think that, um, you know, even though I was on the, the, the other end of those experiences, I, I think thoughtful, smart, investigative journalism is, is vital. Um, uh, a site that I, I enjoyed called the counter, which did deeper dives in a food topics. Unfortunately, I actually just um, announced that it uh, is, is no longer gonna, gonna be. So I, I come from a, a place of, I, I really appreciate and think society needs smart um, journalism, smart investigative journalism. 
Um, I think what happened in that situation is um, that it's it's easy to take um, sort of disparate data points and and anecdotes and put them into almost any frame that you want. Um, and, you know, I, I understand it. I understand we're, you know, we're in the public eye. We're even more in the public eye now, and it, it's a part of the process. Um, I didn't like it. It was not enjoyable. It was incredibly frustrating. Um, and what I tried to do during it, um, which has really been a sustaining thing for me, and, and I share this with a lot of entrepreneurs, is we've gotten, I've gotten really good at learning how to keep my head down and just do the work. And we've developed a sort of um, approach to doing things where we don't get particularly excited about good news, actually, either. <laughs> Um, we try to celebrate a little bit. We we don't allow ourselves to get too hyped when things are going well, like they are now. Um, and we don't we don't get too down on ourselves when we're dealing with with feelings of um, you know this this is a, a big challenge. This is really hard. We've learned just to focus on what is the thing that we need to do today? What is the work that we need to do today? And, and often that's a magic elixir for solving a lot of these problems. And at the end of the day, if consumers, millions of them are wanting to buy something and wanting to share it with their friends and, and it's expanding and it's making their lives better. Mm. Um, you know, we feel like that's something to continue to lean into, but it was, it was very hard. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, I don't wish it on anyone. Mm. Now, I'm glad that you're speaking about this because it, it could be easy from the outside now to see all of the success that your company has achieved and where you are right now and, and sort of just presume it was all linear and without any, any stress or challenges or, or hard times to, to navigate. So I think it's it's helpful for someone else who's listening and perhaps going yeah. through something within their own business and, and maybe trying to decide whether they're up for the challenge or do they want to roll over. Uh, the, other, the other interesting thing that I've read was about the egg industry strategy to try and combat what you were doing. And of course, I've only read what's published o- online. How accurate is, is the kind of reporting <laughs> of of what it, what sort of went down with the egg yeah. industry and some of their emails about your company and and you personally uh, I know that that a lot of that was sorted out in, in court but I find that to be particularly interesting and that must have been stressful for you but also probably an indicator that you were on the right track with what you were doing yeah. um yeah, a, a word about the the hard times thing before I answer that is I, I was speaking to my team earlier today and, and as I mentioned we have a lot of new people who didn't go through all that that stuff, um, who didn't see how hard it was to do a lot of things. And I I told them earlier today that expect many hard things will happen. Like have that expectation. Um and to say that a lot of hard things are gonna happen shouldn't make you miserable shouldn't make you feel depressed 
you should just understand a lot of hard shit's going to happen. And the way to deal with the hard thing is to put your head down and keep doing the work thoughtfully, substantively that you believe in, that you came here and things have a way of, of working itself out. And I don't know what the next hard thing is going to be. You know, if you gave me to, if you asked me to give you a top 10 list, I could probably come up with one, but I really don't know, but I know it's going to be something. Um, and I know that, uh, getting, having a mindset without expecting that is not a healthy mindset for me. Having a mindset that it's just inevitable and we're going to deal with it by putting our heads down and, and doing good work. That's the way to deal with it. Uh, so the egg industry stuff was really interesting, Simon, in that it happened before Just Egg was even out. This is like in 2000, you know, 2013, 2014. So what happened there is, um, uh, so the, there's a group called the American Egg Board and they're, um, a lobbying organization that represents, um, the egg industry. And there were some emails that were discovered through a Freedom of Information Act request. Um, and in those, in those emails, you saw leaders at the American Egg Board talking about how essentially they have their sights set on, taking down this company, my company. They wanted to stop the early distribution of our products. They wanted to, um, you know, influence regulatory bodies um, around us changing uh, our name. Uh, they wanted to uh, pay bloggers to write negative stories about us. And at this time, you know, we were not in a hundred thousand square foot facility like we are with all this, you know, all the, the resources we have today. We're in a 3,000 square foot former Hell's Angels garage in Soma with a big table in the middle with like 11 people sitting around it, most of whom, including me, didn't know what the hell they were doing. <laughs> so, But here you had this big lobbying organization, the American Egg Board, saying they want to stop us. Um, so we... Can I um, ask you a question on that? Yeah, yeah. How, how did you come to the position that you would have a, a sort of investigation and, and use the freedom of information kind of act to, to look into these emails. Was there some tip offs or, you know, what, how was this kind of first brought to your no. attention that, Hey, hang on here. The American egg board is targeting us and we need to look into it. Someone sent us an email and said, I've, I put in a freedom of information at request um, and you should be interested in what the request turned up, called them, talked to them. And um, it was, uh, it was some incredible stuff. Yeah. So we like didn't, we movie. did. Yeah. We, so yeah. So we didn't, we didn't initiate it. It was someone who's, who is really taking an interest in, in undercover, under, um, covering what's going on in certain industries. And, uh, yeah. And then we saw it and then we, um, what, what happened was it got, it got a ton of press, you know, cause it's, it's kind of an interesting story that, mm. that the egg lobby would have an interest in, you know, trying to take down this little company in a garage. Um, and, uh, uh, we, um, we, we eventually had a conversation with the USDA about it because the American egg board is, 
it's, it's this quasi-governmental organization. So it's part of the USDA and it also has a, a private arm. But the USDA did an investigation on it. And then eventually the, the leader at that time of the American Egg Board was asked to, to step, step aside. Um, and then we, we continued our work of trying to find a plant that scrambles like an egg. Mm-hmm. So what's that, that, wild time that relationship? Yeah, it's, it is literally, I think it, there's a, there's a movie script in there one day. Um, what, what's the relationship like today? between the egg industry and, and yourselves. I mean, you mentioned there you hadn't even had eggs out. Now you have eggs out. You're selling a lot of them. Um, is there is there a, an active kind of relationship there? Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's both, a on one hand, an extremely competitive relationship because our competition is an egg from a chicken. Like flat out, that is our competition. If you go into Walmart, you go into Whole Foods, you go into Publix in the South, that's what we're competing against. Um, and there are many companies in the egg industry in the U.S. and globally that are not not a fan of what we're doing. And there's another side to it, and this is a side that would have shocked me if I knew we were doing this, uh, would be doing this in the early days. A number of egg companies are our partners. So there's a company called Michael Foods. Um, most of your listeners probably have never heard of them, um, but they sell more eggs to more restaurants large and small in the United States than any other company. So if you own a lot of big fast food chains, you go to your favorite diner, often the omelet or the egg patty that you're eating is a Michael Foods egg. We just don't know it. It's just not branded that way. So we signed a deal with Michael Foods uh, a couple years ago to have them um, convert our key protein into the finished product, warehouse it, and then utilize their 700 or so people that are a part of their selling network to sell it into local cafes, diners, and big fast food chains. Mm. So as an example, we launched nationally with a company called Pete's Coffee uh, last year. Um, We just launched today with Caribou Coffee, 400 stores. Michael Foods was... Um, leading the way and selling it into those places. And they had people every single day who now will go into a restaurant and say, you know, hey, my name is Jim. We sell chicken eggs and we sell an egg from a plant called Just Egg. And um, this goes back to this how you view capitalism thing. So do I think the egg industry is any less problematic than I used to? No. I think exactly the same things about the industry. But if I can figure out a way to plug into that infrastructure, if I can figure out a way to harness some of that energy Mm. to increase the probability of an egg from a plant being the most consumed egg over the long term, I'm going to do it. Mm. And it turns out that a lot of people that I've met, whether at Michael Foods or other egg companies that we, we work with, when you sit down and you have some coffee with them, when you sit down and you have dinner with them, they're not, they're not fixated on harming our health or harming an animal or harming the climate. What are they fixated on? Human things. Mm-hmm. Building their career, making money, trying to figure out a way to send their kids to college. Human things, right? 
things we're all fixated on. And if they can figure out a way to do more of those things they're trying to do by selling an egg from a plant as opposed to an egg from a chicken, they're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but back in the day, you know, I would have never thought that we would want to plug in and partner with an egg industry that I was determined to determine to fight. Michael Foods, are they are they a primary kind of producer of eggs or are they a distributor? They so they um they house they have chickens, they have millions of chickens okay. uh who lay eggs and then they convert those eggs into lots of different egg products and they sell them out. So they they own egg farms, they process the eggs and they sell eggs. So they do it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really that's really interesting to think about the sort of competitive nature of what you're doing, but then also the opportunity to partner and tap into the supply chain yeah. and the the mutual benefit that, that that can offer. Off the back of the the sort of 2015 um, egg industry kind of dispute, um, court case, whatever you want to call it, did you have to change anything on your label? I know this this kind of conversation, there's a continued conversation around the world about plant-based yeah. Uh, alternative products, cultivated meat products, and labeling. Were were you required to to address any labeling issues? Um, the um, as a result of the American Egg Board thing. Yeah, I guess I mean, that, or just in general over the or over ju- the or years, just in general, yeah. Have you yeah. had any kind of pushback yeah. with regards to hey, that's not that's not an egg. An egg must come from an animal. I'm finding our, this is the, the very, this is the very first just egg that came off the production floor. Um, so it doesn't look like this. This doesn't look like this Mm. in retail. If, if anyone Mm. just watches this, I, everyone on my team signed this. Um, this is, this is my, my bottle, the very first, uh, very first bottle here. So, um, so there are a couple things going on. So, one is this is pretty pretty hard to see, but this is called the statement of identity on the bottom left. It says mm-hmm. plant based scramble. So uh, that that had to be there. Um, the second thing is, and you don't you don't see it now. We put made from plants on the on the top of the frame mm-hmm. to help differentiate it from uh, the conventional egg a bit more. Um, so those are two label changes since we, since we, um, since we started doing this. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously labeling, labeling for plant-based products is a big deal. Labeling for cultivated meat is going to be, uh, is going to be a real big deal. Um, and, and just, just go back to the point on, on Michael Foods. And again, this is a learning for me that you can have the best technology in the world. You can have the best tasting product in the world. You can have the best marketing and branding uh, in the world. And you can sell nothing because there's a whole lot else you need to do. And that whole lot else is kind of boring to a lot of people. Warehousing, um, cold chain distribution, uh, slotting fees, um, working with big distributors like Cisco and U.S. Foods and incentivizing them to sell menuing properly, right? This isn't exactly like stuff that like Hollywood films are made of, mm-hmm. you know? So, I was, But if you don't get it right, you're not going to do anything. 
in this business. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that a company like Michael Foods, the part of the reason why animal protein is so ubiquitous is meat and egg companies are incredible at that stuff. They're incredible at high efficiency manufacturing, at warehousing, at cold chain distribution. And that system can get, you know, um, can get, I've got like tea on my desk. It can get tea to hundreds of millions of people. It can get pork chops to hundreds of millions of people, or it can get plant-based eggs or cultivated meat to hundreds of millions of people. But it's very much still the same system. So if we can figure out a way to leverage, to plug into all of that, well, maybe we can go a little bit faster. And that's, mm-hmm. that's our mentality. When it comes to, to eggs, I'm sure you've seen there's other companies that are looking at using precision fermentation. And you mentioned fermentation before, and, and, and I think there's some companies working on egg proteins, sort of feeding microbes ingredients and um, producing egg proteins that way through fermentation. I'm interested, are just eggs, uh, given now you've got this other department doing cultivated meat, are you likely to stay plant-based with the eggs? Mm. Is that the kind of the goal? Is that the what you believe is the best format? Or do you think you'll also explore precision fermentation here? We'll probably explore um, because I – so we – maybe this is – I have advantages and disadvantages of not being a scientist, right? I didn't study biochemistry. I didn't um, – I, I don't sort of – um, have something I've dedicated my life to a particular discipline, which can often make you want to do that thing, even though it might not necessarily be the best thing for the product. Um, I just want to make really good stuff, like really good stuff, meaning I want an egg from a plant to be a lot more awesome than an egg from a chicken. <laughs> I want cultivated meat to be just a whole lot better than conventional chicken. And I'm very open to different technologies to do it. Uh, it's actually uh, making an egg, culturing an egg is actually the, far and away the most difficult thing to culture because essentially you have to recreate life, um, which is why we thought doing it from a plant would make more sense. But exploring ways for uh, yeast to express different egg proteins, I think is really interesting. And we'll probably explore that sometime. Um, um, but um, yeah, I think, I think, there are all sorts of technologies, both that exist and probably new ones, that we, if we're doing our job, we'll get after. Yeah, it's uh, it's exciting from a consumer point of view to know that there are so many different companies working on these things, and, con- and consistently over the years, these products are only going to get better and better and, and, and better. You mentioned cultivated meat a few times. I think we change gears here a little bit. Do you recall? the sort of moment that you decided uh, as an organization that you wanted to venture into this space as well? Uh, was was it always kind of part of your vision or was there a moment where you no. decided, you know what, I, I actually want Eat Just to go down this path as well? It was, it was always, it's been on my mind for a bit. I remember um, a friend of mine sent me um, a paper that NASA published um, 20 years ago about culturing goldfish in, uh, in space. And I read this paper during, um, a constitutional law class, um, back, back in law school. So it's been in my head, but it really took, 
took on a life of itself in 2017 or so. That same dude, Josh Bach, who pushed me to do the egg, we were um, in the kitchen and we were talking about what the company might do next. And he's fired up about doing cultivated meat. And we had this conversation about it. Um, And the conversation sort of went like, what would be a bet that maybe it's a low probability of it actually happening, but if it did, would be the most effective thing to move people away from intensive animal farming to something a lot better. Now, keep in mind, we're making this bet as we clearly believe in plant-based. So I'm not someone who says, you know, plant-based is nothing, cultivating meat is everything. We, we spent hundreds of millions of dollars to make just egg and egg from a plant happen. Um, but at the end of the day, I think the quickest way to transition people from conventional is to give them real animal flesh just without the need to slaughter an animal. So it was about 2017 that uh, I had that conversation with Josh, and then we began the process of figuring out how the hell we're going we're gonna to do it. If someone's hearing cultivated meat, for the first time and thinking, what are you guys talking about here? Uh, which often I can forget that, you know, in, in the kind of circles that you and I would find ourselves in, we can kind of take it for granted that this is a, a new term. How would you define cultivated meat to, to that person that is coming across this for the first time? I'd say to that person, it starts with understanding conventional meat. So it's just use chicken. Chicken lives for about 45 days from chick until it's slaughtered in a warehouse eating lots of soy and corn. Um, Strung up, cut into chicken wings and chicken breasts and chicken nuggets. And you eat the chicken without realizing that it was actually a live animal who ate lots of soy and corn that came from previously biodiverse rainforests. That's the conventional process. The cultivation of chicken gives you the end product that you really like. You like chicken nuggets and give you that without all those other things that are causing harm to the animal, to the environment, to food safety. And it starts with a cell instead of a live animal. So instead of a live squawking, breathing chicken with lots of behaviors like dust bathing and pecking, we don't start with that. We start with a cell and you can get a cell from an egg you can get a cell from a fresh piece of meat. You can, get, you can get a cell from a biopsy. You can get the cell from a cell bank. From that cell, then you identify nutrients for the cell to consume. You develop the cell line. So in the same way, a chicken eats soy and corn, and the soy and corn provides nutrients to fat and muscle on the chicken's bones, we need to figure out a way to develop our cell line without the live animal consuming in the warehouse. And then the third step, is we grow it, we manufacture it, or our word, cultivate it in a vessel that has, you know, a name that in some ways I wish it was a different name. It's called a bioreactor. That's a name. It's a stainless steel mm. vessel called a bioreactor. Yeah. If you kind of close your eyes, you about the uh, the name. <laughs> it's a bad name. Need- it's a bad name. <laughs> <laughs> um, we need to I change for- that. For- <laughs> we need to. We, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, you know, it kind of is what it is. It, it's the it's 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 the name a uh, name of the vessel. So, a bioreactor is uh, the vessel used um, to to culture or cultivate cells, um, and the end product is 
chicken. So when I say it is chicken, I don't mean it's chicken made from mushrooms. I don't mean it's chicken made from soy. I don't mean it's kind, kind of, I mean, literally it is chicken. I mean, genetically it's chicken. I mean, the flavor profile is chicken. I mean, Simon, if you had a chicken sandwich and you had a chicken allergy, you would have an allergic outbreak at the table chicken. That That's what it is. Um, and um, this idea has been talked about for a long time. Back in the 20s, Winston Churchill um, was was talking about it. And the science of it, the technology Elements have been done before in vaccine production, drug development. It's just never been applied to food like it's beginning to be applied today. With that, that chicken, you mentioned there the biopsy. Uh, but am I right, though, that, that chicken would, would feature not just the protein, but also the fats as well. So it would be the kind of complete experience of what you would normally get when sort of biting into a piece of chicken so it depends on the cell so if you if you're culturing muscle cells it'll only be muscle if you're culturing fat it'll only be fat um we we have a number we have a a, a fat program here at at uh at, at our our labs um but it's one of the the issues with our current chicken product and this is hopefully when we get into it this balance between sensory and health which I, I care a whole lot about, but our chicken doesn't have enough fat. Um, so it's more, it tastes more akin to chicken breast than it does sort of a gotcha. fatty dark meat. Uh, but if you want fat, you culture fat cells. If you want muscle, you culture muscle cells. Mm-hmm. And in terms of that, that process, you, you sort of mentioned then that you kind of feed nutrients in to these cells within this bioreactor and i think this is one of the the things that i see people online kind of bickering about and and fighting about and and certain people will say well how much better is this for the environment you know if you're feeding in these nutrients are they coming from the same sort of inputs are we talking about corn soy potato Um, so firstly like what are the, the kind of different foods that are being fed into this system. And, and the second part of that question would be for someone who is thinking about this and is uh, grappling with that, is there any form of analysis that's been done by any third parties that have aimed to kind of quantify and say, well, through this method, yes, there are inputs, but if you produce a kilogram of chicken this way through, cu- mm. through cultured meat, this is how much less water or less land or less greenhouse gas emissions that yeah. we could expect when when scaling. Yeah, yeah, lot, lots of good questions here. So um, let me start with the environmental piece. So there has been there has been um, a number of groups have done analysis on it. I'll try to average them out. Generally, cultivating meat versus conventional meat in the recent. Um, um, UN climate change report also noted this 60, 70% less environmentally intensive land, water, carbon than the conventional approach. Here's a caveat. It's just an analysis. It's not an analysis of large scale production, right? No one is producing it. We're the only company in the world that has ever received approval and has ever sold a single piece of cultivated meat, but we're doing it at a very, very small scale. And embarrassing, we'll talk, it's embarrassing how small the scale is right now. Um, and 
in order to really have a robust analysis, you've got to see what this looks like at a very large scale, meaning north of 30 million pounds a year to really get a sense of how it compares to conventional. So I think the, the straight way to say it is the early indications are that it's significantly better, but there's a lot more work to, to do here. Now, what's even better than cultivating meat, and this is part of the challenge I have as a, as a human being who runs a company, I think the best way to eat is, you know, kind of the stuff that I see on my desk here. Like I see an orange. I had a couple of bananas earlier. I have a bowl here of, of beans, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, and oregano. Um, I actually don't think cultivated meat or plant-based eggs should be necessary at all. I think it'd be a lot easier if people people ate ate stuff like that but uh you know we end up we having we end up having an imperfect world i know you're working on that um yeah uh, but, but uh good luck it's, convincing it's, everyone to do that yeah that's right that's right <laughs> so you mentioned there that you're the only company or the first company that has received approval so i'm i'm interested in you know 2017 i think you kind of decided to enter this space of cultivated meat. But there are companies that have been working within cultivated meat for probably 10 years maybe. I might might be a few years out there. But there are some that were around earlier working on you know, uh, beef, uh, other, other types of meat. How do you get to the market faster than those companies? Um, we learned a lot through Just Egg. Um, you know, being, being a cultivated meat company, it's about cell line development. It's about um, scaling up to the special called a bioreactor. But all those other boring things, like regulatory approval, um, uh, we've learned how to do them well. We've learned how to be the other side. Food technology is technology and food. And we've learned... Um, how to be a food company. So we applied a lot of, le- Just Egg today has improved in multiple countries around the world, China, South Africa, um, Canada. Um, and we took a lot of the lessons and we applied it to our work in, in cultivated meat. We started a new division called Good Meat. That's the, the name of our cultivated meat product. Um, and we quickly began applying those lessons and then decided that the, um, the best place, the highest probability, the place that made the most sense for us to really submit a full application is, uh, is Singapore. And we submitted that application in 2000 and gosh, sometime maybe early 2000 and late 2018. Um, and that application covered the microbiological analysis, covered lots of food safety issues, covered where we got to sell, covered the components in the media. I, I, I didn't answer the question. The, uh, you, you asked a question about media, vitamins and minerals, um, some plant-based sources that make up the, the components of, of the media. Um, and then we submitted it to them. And then it took about a year and a half for the Singaporean authorities to render a verdict on it. And it was uh, Thanksgiving Day, um, November 2020. Um when we finally heard back and I knew we were going to hear back that day. 
and I got tired of checking my phone and I laid on the ground um, in the living room. I just laid down. I didn't even have a pillow under me. I had my phone like a few feet from me, so I would stop checking it obsessively. And I fell asleep, and I woke up to someone calling me and giving me the news that we received the first ever approval to sell the slaughter-free meat. And then in um, December 21st of 2020, we launched the damn thing. Ironic, it's Thanksgiving, the uh, day where a lot of poultry is consumed. Yeah, wasn't lost on me. Mm. Why do you think Singapore is kind of leading the way in terms of regulations in this space? Are they just typically a bit more progressive when it comes to, to food or what's the kind of incentive for them to be at the front of the pack here? Singapore. Singapore is thinking, what does the world look like in 2050? Like at the heart of it, that's just how they're operating. They're operating 20, 30 years ahead of where we are right now. We're, we're, we have a, a political system that operates, you know, much more. And let's try to solve today's issue. Like even in dealing with COVID-19, right? We're rightfully developing vaccines. Well, what is the root of this damn thing? Right? How do we prevent it to begin with? Singapore is on to the root of things. Mm. They're trying to get at that. Um, and that pervades all areas of Singaporean society. It pervades how regulators think, how the Economic Development Board that recruits companies to come, how senior later, leaders in the Ministry um, of Commerce environment think. Um, we also like that Singapore is a, is a hub in Asia, which is consuming um the vast majority of chicken, beef, and pork uh, in the world. Um, so all those things kind of matched up, mm. and it felt like Singapore would be the the best place to to get this thing kicked off. So is that the kind of the plan here? I guess from the outside, someone might look at Singapore and think, I think it's about five or six million the population, something like that. Yeah, it might be a little bit out, yeah. but it's not it's not huge. So I'm trying to 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 get into your mind as to the the decision around seeking approval there is it because being first to the market is is a great sort of pr and it's obviously a very historic moment like i i can imagine now in in 50 100 years when humans are looking back at cultivated meat that's going to be an iconic moment the one that you described there where people are trying cultivated meat for the first time uh or is is Singapore? Do you see as being a, a real hub for distribution into those Asian countries that are surrounding that have very big populations? Yeah, we want we want our our manufacturing hub in Asia to be in Singapore. So we're investing tens of millions of dollars in manufacturing infrastructure to make meat in Singapore, N- not just to serve the relatively small population. Your your number is more or less right in terms of the population of Singapore. But to export it across Asia, uh, we want to accelerate research and development in Singapore. We want many of the first products that we put out, like when we eventually put out beef and pork, we'd like that to be in Singapore. Um, and then we use that foundation, that consumer feedback, and I'll share more about how we're learning from consumers who are buying it every week and, and making it better. We want to use that to inform our process, inform how we improve the products, improve how we talk about it. We've learned a lot of lessons about how to communicate about cultivated meat through our process of, of selling to consumers in Singapore. So yeah, it is, um, it, uh, 
it's really turned out to to be one of the things we're we're most uh, mm-hmm. most grateful for that the country is is really thinking this far ahead really benefits cultivated maize. Yeah, talk to me about the current production in Singapore. So if I was to fly over there, it's not too far from where I am in, in Sydney and I'm often in Indonesia. If I was to fly over there, um, could I try it or is it kind of only available to select people or select restaurants? Where where can can someone actually try it at the moment and how much are you producing? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll start just back up a little bit. So on December 21st, we launched it and um, we, uh, we launched it um, – a place called 1880 um, in in their restaurant. We had five young people between 12 and 18 who were selected because of of their commitment to trying to make things a little bit better in their community. Um, and um, it was that night. Um, what I was wanting more than anything was a picture of the receipt, um, because you know we had sampled cultivated meat. Uh, other companies had sampled it. But why it mattered was it was now being sold. So the thing that people still refer to as science fiction was now dinner and someone had paid for it. So that was like my most prized image, actually seeing a receipt uh, being sent. And then the second meaningful thing that happened, I had this conversation with a young girl named Kaya, 12 years old, who was one of the kids who sat down. And I asked Kaya for her feedback. I had them pipe me in through through my phone. And I thought Kaya was going to say, you know, I, I like the texture, but, you know, I, I think it should be a little bit better. Um, and she said, how can you use this technology to help more animals? 12 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that really, her her sort of penetrating question always, always sticks with me. Um, so since that moment, we've sold in 1880 um, on a weekly basis today, we have what we call them uh, immersive dinners where um, both the public and people we invite have um, one to two dinners a week where they, we take them through sort of the story of uh, the food system focused on animal production and, and where it might go and, and feed them chicken at the end. Um, we've launched at uh, a local hawker stand in Singapore. Um, hawker stand is like street food in Singapore. Um, we uh, we launched with um, a hawker stand named Mr. Luz, who's been selling chicken curry rice for 60 years in Singapore. And Mr. Lu initially was very skeptical of this and then decided that he was down with it, put it on his menu, saw long lines out outside of people really enjoying it and then um started talking about how this is an evolution and how and how chicken should be made um you would be able to go if you if you went uh today you'd be able to order it um from food panda so it's a delivery service um there that uh works uh with uh with a restaurant and you could order um um chicken dumplings um you could order um uh, another kind of chicken curry rice uh, dish. The total volume is very small. I'm talking about like in the hundreds of pounds um, this year. Um, and uh, it, it both is, as I mentioned, kind of embarrassingly small and simultaneously really historic. 
because mm-hmm. it's the only place that it's ever been sold and it continues to be sold on a weekly basis. I'm assuming that the the production cost is pretty high given that there's yeah. not a lot of scale right now. Yeah, we're, so not, we're, not, make, in order, we're not making money selling it. Yeah, yeah that was my question. <laughs> so yeah. in order yeah. to make it work and it's at a price that someone's willing to pay um, at this volume, you're losing money on these sales? Yeah, quite a bit of money. Yeah, when we... Um, we we typically line price it with whatever chicken was on the menu, um, and yeah, we're we're definitely losing money on on every sale. Now, it's not as if we're you know selling to tens of millions of people, so the the loss is capped because there's a small number of people that are currently consuming it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the the really interesting dynamics that we're seeing happen that makes me even more of a believer in in where cultivated meat could take the food system is we're seeing um, a restaurant or two when cultivated meat is on the menu, removing conventional meat, conventional chicken from the menu. And that's really interesting because it's a bit different than how plant-based meat is handled. Typically, the way plant-based meat is handled, you'll have the conventional and you'll have, in my mind, the much better plant-based option. But there seems to be a bit more of an openness to only have cultivated meat on the menu because from their perspective what satisfies the people who care about the environment it satisfies the people who care about animal welfare and it satisfies the people who like animal flesh um and you know ultimately we think figuring out a way to remove conventional meat entirely from the menu is a, necess- a necessity if we're going to you know, have a livable planet in the future. Mm. Can't just be an option. We need a full replacement. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. I can, I can see restaurants doing that because really they're not having to, to give up anything. It's still the same experience, yeah. but it's, it's probably, well, not probably, it will be more aligned with almost everyone's values. Uh, on, on the menu the the labeling cultivated meat is the terminology you're using here is that the kind of accepted name that is being used in market and you expect all companies around the world to be using is that is that something that companies come together and agree on so that there's some consistent language i know there's other sort of names like lab-based and cell-based that have been thrown up over over the years cultivated Mm. meat is that is that where you have landed Companies come together, but they don't always agree on what on what the name should be. So, um, I um, so we 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 definitely, and it seems like a consensus is coming around cultivated meat. Uh, GFI, the Good Food Institute, and I know I know you've spoken with Bruce before. Mm-hmm. He's um, they've really done a lot to help organize um, uh, folks around the idea of, of cultivated meat as a name. But on the menu, it says yeah, it'll say. Um, uh, cultivated chicken, good meat, cultivated, whatever the, the name of the dish is. Um, at the end of the day, I hope what we call it is meat. Um, just like at the end of the day, I hope what we call an electric car is a car. And I used to call this thing a smartphone, and today I call it a phone. So at the end of the day, I hope that descriptor is dropped and we just call it meat and it's boring and no one wants to talk about it anymore because it's, it's just the thing. Mm. Now, the other names that you could choose are uh, cell-based meat, 
You could choose sell cultured meat. You could choose um, cultured meat. Um, you could choose my least favorite lab grown meat, um, which thankfully has been used a little bit less um, because, you know, we're in a manufacturing environment. We're not making it in the lab anymore in Singapore. It's a manufacturing environment. So it's not, not in the lab anymore. Um, but, you know, there, there are issues really with every name, including cultivated. Um, and I think, I guess cultivated to us is the, the least worst option of a number of not so, not so good options. What do you think? What's your, what's your preferred name? I, I definitely agree on, on cultivated meat and, yeah. and have, have thought that for a number of years now, but I'm with you in terms of, I think the ultimate goal is normalizing it to the point where it's just protein. It's just meat. Um, and no one's questioning the source. It's just showing up uh, and the accepted way that we produce and, and consume animal protein. There's probably, I mean, not probably, there's a long way to go to get the, the sort of customer acceptance and, and reach that level of uh, normalization. You mentioned uh, Kaya and, mm. and her kind of response to you. And I'm curious, in this conversation about consumer acceptance, would I... Would I be right that the the youths, the the younger generations, may be a little bit more receptive, a little bit more accepting, uh, at least in, initially, whereas those that are a bit older, you know, 40, 50, 60s, who grew, grew up in a completely different time, might be a little bit more skeptical and have a few more questions? So um, if you're under the age of, 25 in Singapore, um, and someone serves you uh, cultivated meat made by us, and we start talking to you about um, all the intricate elements in the process and how it comes together. And, you know, we sort of say, you know, do you mind that it's made in a, a stainless steel vessel called a bioreactor? If you're under the age of 25 in Singapore, you'll, you look at us like we're crazy for asking that you would be bothered by it. Young people don't care that their meat is made, their meat is made in a stainless steel vessel. They think it's cool. There's, there's zero hesitation we found under the age of 25 to make meat in a giant stainless steel vessel. They think it's interesting. They like that it's different. Um, they don't mind the term bioreactor. Um, they don't, they don't, they're not going to give you a lot of questions. Now, the older you get, 30, 35, keep going older, you're going to get more questions. What, what do you mean a bioreactor? Where is this bioreactor? What, is, what are the elements that make up of the media? Tell me about how the process works. You're going to get a lot more questions. And there's a lot more of an uncomfortable feeling and very fair questions that are being asked. But, you know, I really want to emphasize just how stark, you know, if you're listening to this and you think, Bioreactor, that sounds crazy, right? Culturing meat, that sounds awfully bizarre. I can almost guarantee you're over the age of 25. Mm. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's amazing how clear young people think about it. They've just grown up in a world of new technologies. They've grown up in a world where new things are happening all the time. Um, and, and for them... What is really bizarre and odd is making meat in a conventional way. 
that seems like something that you really want to question. Hmm. So how do you go about educating and giving some of the more skeptical consumers a bit more confidence? You know, I see various things online where uh, the immediate reaction that someone may have, particularly if they are a little bit older, is, well, I understand what you're talking about, but these foods are sort of quote-unquote unnatural and, and without a track record of safety. That's one thing that, that kind of I see comes up. What do you think is required within the industry, companies like yourself and, and others, to, to address that and make people feel more confident in, mm-hmm. in purchasing cultivated meat over the, the kind of traditional meat that they may be used to buying? Yeah. Yeah, so I, let, let's let's say some, someone hears about it, a process of cell line, where you get the cell, how you develop, how you make it in this vessel called a bioreactor, and they say, "Well, that, that sounds that sounds really strange and unnatural, and really, you know, like this is in science fiction." I've heard that a number of times. I think it starts with me and other leaders in the industry to understand why they would think that. It is kind of strange. Mm-hmm. Um, just first acknowledging, I think if you don't acknowledge that, it does sound a little bit strange. I don't think you can deal with it. So I think first is just, it's a bit, it's a bit different. It's a bit odd. I get you. Okay. Now let's talk about how this is different than the conventional industry. And typically, you know, you don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about the conventional industry, but when you just compare it head to head with it, no one thinks a conventional industry is natural. You know, that's often a big misnomer, right? A a chicken um, being slaughtered at 45 days and barely able to stand up because its breasts are so large, that ain't natural, right? So I think when you make the contrast, it helps a bit. I think when you can draw analogies to other industries, that they're not perfect analogies, right? A brewery, it's not a perfect analogy. But it helps people understand that this idea of making something in a stainless steel vessel wasn't born with us or other companies. It's been happening. Um, I think that helps. I think giving even more detail, and I think we initially thought helps a lot. So right now we go overboard, especially if you're over the age of 25 and giving you detail, Right. All the ways that we source the cells, um, what the media looks like. And I think when you, and we developed a, a section on our website that unpacks it even more because people had so many questions. I think that helps. The thing that helps the most, though, is just putting the thing on the damn menu. Mm-hmm. Just putting it on the menu. So Mr. Lou, right? That guy that we launched with in Singapore was so skeptical, thought it was weird. Put it on the menu, had some chicken, saw a line out the door, tasted it, liked it. All right. I'm down. Hmm. We're emotional, you know, beings at the end of the day and hanging out with our friends and eating some chicken and it tastes like chicken and it feels like chicken and it smells like chicken. And I'm feeling pretty good after I ate it. That is the best method to convincing people. So getting on more menus is more effective than any like, you know, PR campaign that we could ever have. It's more effective than any communication strategy. Get on the menu and feed some people, feed some people some chicken. That's how you're going to do it. And in terms of the kind of the hoops that you have to jump through 
maybe we talk more specifically to Singapore here because you've got regulatory approval. Are you held to the same sort of safety standards as the meat industry in terms of uh, the testing for bacteria or other contaminants and just ensuring general safety of the, of the food? Uh, it's a it's a higher standard. So so for us, if you look at let's just use kind of um, a microbiological analysis, E. coli, Salmonella, fecal contamination as examples. So our our standard is higher. So we have little to no trace of any of that. Whereas conventional chicken, beef, and pork would have traces. Now, once you cook it, often that that's dealt with. So. You know, generally, it's a higher, different standard because it's a it's a different process than uh, the conventional meat industry is. But you know, we, by virtue of not just sampling, but we selling on a weekly basis, you know, we have to have, and we do a pretty robust safety and quality program. Every piece of chicken that's bought by a consumer had to get you know that test before it's before it's released. Um, and it'll be one of the biggest challenges as we scale up, right? As we move from 500, 1200 liter, 20,000, 200,000 liter, meaning the size of the vessel that we're making it in, it's really important that the, the product, it goes without saying, that is made safely, that is made in a way that um, is, um, uh, remains with the, the same safety standards that we have at, at, at a small scale, or it won't get approved. And, you know, it won't, it won't work. The other question that, that I think people are really interested in here, and we sort of alluded to it earlier, is the nutritional profile of these foods and, and how that yeah. may or may not differ to traditional meat. And yeah. I'm assuming this could be different for, for different companies producing cultivated meats, some that are focusing just more on the sustainability of the system, uh, the, the ethical nature uh, and then others who are perhaps considering that, but also considering human health. Where where does Eat Just land here? And, and mm. is this something that, that you as a company are, are sort of cognizant of? Well, I'll start with this is one of the things that, not one of, this is the thing that I struggle with the most. Um, I, listen, when it, when it comes to what we eat, I care about the evidence. Um, we talked about Ansel Keys uh, earlier. Saturated fat is correlated with cardiovascular disease. Dietary cholesterol is correlated with cardiovascular disease. I have no doubt. Um, cultivated meat has more or less the same dietary cholesterol and more or less the same saturated fat, a little bit less saturated fat, thankfully, our chicken, but essentially the same. So from a pure... If we're just focusing on cardiovascular risk, it's roughly the same. Food safety a lot better. Um, some other elements like being uh, free of antibiotics better. And uh, I, I will say, Simon, that does bother me um, because I, I care a lot about human health. Um, I care a lot about my health and my family's health. Um, and, um, I, I make sure that I eat every day in a way that reduces my risk of ever having heart disease. And I would like to see cultivated meat that is significantly, not only more sustainable, not only safer, not only cheaper, not only tastier, but significantly healthier 
than conventional meat. And that's not what we have today, mm-hmm. but we're working on it. Okay. So you think that's a possibility though? It's a possibility. Now, in order to do it, the most likely candidate to do it, um, and this is where um, your listeners, if they didn't think the bioreactor was strange, they're really going to think uh, this is strange, is, um, is, is I think um, gene editing techniques like CRISPR uh, will be necessary. I think I could imagine using a CRISPR-led approach to ultimately have chicken, beef, and pork that has significantly less saturated fat and dietary cholesterol than conventional. Um, there's probably going to be some additional regulatory hurdles. That's going to be additional costs. But I think ultimately, when I think of how do we get to a world where the vast majority of meat that is consumed is without the need to slaughter an animal, I think it also has to be healthier. Um, the idea that a cardiologist, right, might recommend that you eat, mm-hmm. um, good meat, chicken or beef because it has 70% less saturated fat than conventional is one that I get pretty excited about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'd love to push towards something like that. Are there any other sort of questions or things that you typically hear from, from sort of skeptics that you mm-hmm. think we, we haven't touched on that you think will need to be addressed over the coming years in order to normalize all of this? Yeah, if I if I, li- if I listed all of them, we might be here together for another seven <laughs> hours. I'll, I'll keep it to a sh- I'll keep it to a shorter list. Uh, one is um, it, you can't scale this. You can do it mm-hmm. in a few restaurants. You're not going to be able to scale this. This won't work at two hundred thousand liter scale. This won't work if you're trying to make tens of millions of pounds of it. Um, the so the truth of that is. The sentiment of that criticism that's right is it's really hard. It's really capital intensive, requires a lot of engineering that has not been done yet. And the heart of the challenge is this vessel, come back to the bioreactor again, they don't make big ones. Um, They don't make bioreactors north of 200,000 liters, the kind of size that's required to make lots of meat. So we have to design and engineer them ourselves. And today we do this with uh, one of our, our, our most trusted partners. So we have to do it from scratch. So there are a lot of unknowns about how we design and engineer at that scale. Um, and we'll, we think there's a, a greater than 50% chance, 50% chance we'll be able to figure out, but that that's one criticism. Another criticism is, um, um, this idea that it'll it'll just never taste like uh, chicken beef or pork. That's usually a, an easy one to deal with because, you know, we just have the feedback on a weekly basis. And the most common feedback we get is this tastes like chicken. Um, another, another feedback piece of feedback is criticism is this. All right. You might be able to scale it. Maybe it'll taste like chicken. But it's never going to actually replace the conventional. Uh, and again, I think it's a very fair criticism. And I think they're right if we can't make it as good or better tasting, if we can't make it healthier, if we can't make it more cost effective, then they're probably right. And if we can, I think they're probably wrong. Um, those, are, those are a handful that we get. 
Oh, that, actually, one more, that? one more. One, one more, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll give you. Um, is, all right, this, I get it. So happened in 300 years. So you actually have some people that believe in it quite a bit, but just think the time period is 300 years as opposed to 30 years. Mm-hmm. Again, very valid. Lots of stuff has to happen, right? We've got to build 250,000 liter vessels in, in areas around the world. Tens of billions of dollars need to be invested in it. We need regulatory approval. We've got to adjust consumers' mindset. We've got to get on menus across the world. Lots of stuff has to happen. Um, and if all that stuff doesn't happen with an urgency, you know, our great, uh, great, great grandkids 300 years from now might be having this podcast and making excuses to why it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't have to take 300 years. It can happen actually in 30 years. Um, and our job is to increase the probability that it's much closer to 30 than it is 300. Mm. They might be doing that podcast from Mars, but uh, we won't know about well, that. But uh, They'll, they'll, they'll that probably was, be in cultivated meat though. Yeah. On yeah. Mars. Well, let's hope so. <laughs> let's hope so. Yeah. Um, but that was my question. It was timeline. It's one that I get quite a lot. If uh, I'm sure you have some models and some projections and if all things occur as you would like to see them unfold, how long until we see cultivated meat in countries like America, like Canada, UK, yeah. Australia? Are we, if everything went to plan and the scaling up was feasible, there was the right investment to make all of that happen, the supply chain was there, all the logistics, the partnerships that are required – the grocery stores are on board. Are we talking about big changes in, say, 10 years, 15, 20? What does that look like? So th- think about in terms of like four courses at a dinner. So your appetizer course one is what's happening right now in Singapore. It's being sold. Very small scale, though. Course two um, is it's more than a couple restaurants, a hawker stand. It's at hundreds it's at thousands of different locations in a single country course three is more or less where the plant-based industry is today multi-billion dollar industry multiple countries but still tiny percent of the overall market Mm -hmm. course four is where we really want to go where there's a day sometime in the next 30 years where the vast majority of meats consumed is cultivated, not conventional. Now, um, I think we can get to course four within a 30 year time frame, mm-hmm. And that simultaneously, Simon feels, um, sadly long. Um, but in the scheme of things, you know, not, not so long. Um, and I think we're going to go through these stages and, um, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of, a lot of challenges and, you know, a lot of stuff that we're and other companies will deal with. But I think those are the, the, the four different phases. And, um, 30 years from now, I think if things go well, if the technology continues to develop, if cost continues to come down, we're going to be at a place where on that given day, when we look at the data, the vast majority of meat that was made 
was cultivated, not slaughtered. Um, and that's the day I really celebrate. I'm sure there are a lot of folks in your office, in your team, also your friends and family that ask you all the time, when is the U.S. government going to make some decisions and and approve uh, certain companies like yourself to sell cultivated meat in the States just like Singapore? Would you say that that's – is that the next country that you'd like to see this occur in or do you think it will occur elsewhere first and, and how long do you think it will be until the States do approve it? Yeah, I think I think the U.S. will be next. Um, so we're working closely with the FDA now and it, it's, it's, uh, I think difficult to see it on the outside, uh, but the FDA is really engaged in this similar to SFA, which is the FDA counterpart in Singapore. All the hard questions that you can imagine a regulator asking about where do you get the cell? How do you develop the cell line? What does the process look like? The FDA is, is all over. Um, it's difficult to say when, um, we're going to receive, um, uh, an answer from them as to as to whether it it's approved, um, because a regulator like that doesn't doesn't share the timing in that way. What I can tell you is we'll be ready to launch within weeks. So we partner with a guy named Jose Andres, who's one of the most iconic chefs in the world. He's going to be our launch partner in the U.S. Um, and uh, within weeks of getting the approval, we're going to be on a menu. So we're not going to mm-hmm. waste a lot of time. We got the approval. Thanksgiving Day in Singapore, launch about a month later. It'll be same kind of thing in the United States. And we are internally preparing for that um, without knowing exactly when that, that approval is going to come. Now, it'll be a little bit si- similar to Singapore in that, you know, we'll, we'll certainly make a big deal of it and be really proud, but it's not large scale mm-hmm. because a regulator can't give you large scale. You can submit a million documents to a regulator and have the most thorough process. That's not going to enable you to make tens of millions of pounds of slaughter-free beef. We, in parallel, have to do the design and the engineering and the investment and the hard work to build that infrastructure, not knowing when regulatory approval is going to come. So we're investing those tens of millions of dollars right now to build that infrastructure right next to where I'm sitting right here. Um, and, uh, when it comes, we'll be ready. Um, Mm -hmm. but that's both, both things have to be done at, uh, at the same time. One thing that has just come to mind is when, with these regulatory approvals, like the one that you've got in Singapore and let's say in, in the States, hopefully very soon, is that a category wide regulation and, mm. and approval that then anyone can come in and do this or is it a company by company approval yeah yes yeah, it's, it's a really good question so in in singapore um it's specific to us and the information we submitted related to our specific cell line and our process for turning that cell line into a final chicken product um, doesn't apply to other chicken cells, doesn't apply to other companies, applies to us. Um, I'm speculating. I think that'll be the case in the United States that initially it'll be specific case by case. And then I think what will happen both in Singapore, the U S and others, Australia and others that come onto this are, there'll be a, a framework that is built through the process of dealing with these individual cases that will then, um, 
will then apply more more broadly. But I think, you know, first regulators need to deal with a specific case is to understand the right questions to ask, to understand the right process to set up, and then it'll be more broadly uh, more broadly applicable. But I'll tell you, for us, you know, sometimes people send me articles about some other company that started in the cultivated meat space as if I'm supposed to be upset by that. My interest is to live to see a day with the majority of meat that is eaten is not slaughtered. That's what I want. That's what I'm fighting for. Um, and I don't, I, I don't have any um, belief that there's going to be a single company that does it. There might be a single company that leads it, and I, and I hope that's us. Mm. But you're going to need companies all over the world that are doing this, that are doing different kinds of products, different kinds of approaches that are pushing each other, mm-hmm. ultimately just to, to get to it in the same way that you see the electric car industry play out. Had another question on customer acceptance that just came to mind. And I think yeah. your your company is in a unique position here because you have the plant-based product, Just Eggs, and no doubt there are is a, a certain uh, section um, of your customer base that is vegan. And mm. I, rea- I realize that cultivated meat is certainly not being developed and, and to, to target the vegan market, it, it wouldn't make yeah. a whole lot of sense. There's not enough of them. Yeah. And, and the idea is to impact the world in, in, a, in a much bigger way. But it's an interesting thing to kind of to think about. Would Do you think that a vegan would consume cultured meat uh, or is that going to be something that where you see some vegans do, some don't, don't depending on kind of their definition of veganism? So I didn't, uh, I'm trying to remember what I expected in Singapore. Um, so I thought that the vast majority of vegans in Singapore would want to eat this vast majority, like north of 80%. And it's turned out that it's lower than that. <laughs> it, uh, it's probably around, around 50%. Um, almost all are supportive. Many will come to the dinners and they'll mm. observe other people eating it. Almost celebrating that other people are eating the meat while they're enjoying their kale salad. Um, and I think for some percentage of vegans, I'm not, I'm not one of them. The idea of eating animal flesh is just repulsive. The idea of an animal in their mouth is disorienting, is disgusting, right? For others, you know, maybe again, like me who grew up eating pounds of chicken every week, I smell chicken on the barbecue and I want to. I want to walk closer to that party, uh, even though I don't eat it. Um, so that's, that's been interesting seeing the reaction of, of, uh, vegans out there. Um, and you know, I, um, I, I guess I, I kind of have a weird diet in that I eat all plants except for our cultivated chicken. Mm. So we might need sort of a new name for a diet mm. when this is a little bit more widely uh, widely available. Yeah, I was I was having a kind of joke with a friend last night, but it'll be interesting to see if we uh, if a new category of cultivated carnivores or something pops up in in ten years, which yeah. no doubt it it will. Um, leave us with the the future here more more from and and 
just eat um, point of view, where would you like to be as a, as a company in 10 years from now? What, how do you think your company will have changed from today? Yeah. Um, 10 years from now, um, I would like um, us to be the first real global egg company. A global egg company doesn't exist today because when you deal with a live animal, it has to be in a specific geography and the shelf life for shelled eggs are not, not that good. I like us to be the first real global egg company. And in some countries, in some of those retailers, be the top selling egg product that there is. Today, in some retailers, we, we cross like the top four or five eggs that are sold. And I'd like us to, to be number one. I'd like us to have sold many tens of billions of, of eggs by that time. Um, and on the cultivated meat side, I would like us to have multiple large-scale facilities producing north of 30 million pounds of meat per facility. For it to be in national distribution in the U.S. and at least one other country. And for most people who are paying attention to things, for them to look at what we're doing in the industry 10 years from now and say, this is obviously going to be the thing that transitions us away from traditional animal agriculture. In the same way that you can look at electric cars today, whether you like them or not, you can see where it's going, right? When GM announces it's no longer going to be mention, uh, producing gas-powered cars, you see where things are headed. Um, and I want people to say the same thing and feel the same thing about where the where the meat industry is headed. And then, you know, personally, um, I want to I want to keep doing this with um, the, these people that work in this building that that uh, that really push themselves and uh, and and work for something that you know, we think is really, is really meaningful. And I want to answer Kaya's call. You know, Kaya said to me on that dinner, the first ever dinner to ever sell cultivated meat, how can we use this technology to help more animals? And we got to live up to that. I love it. And I'm looking forward to hopefully watching all of that unfold. Thank you so much, Josh, for your time today. It's been a, a real pleasure getting to know you and, and your company. And I think I just misspoke. I said, just eat, but it's eat just. Um, and we didn't quite get into the, the brand name, but is there, is there a, a kind of meaning behind just in, in the way that you use it within your brand? Yeah, for, for us, uh, it's about um, one part simple and the other part a an idea of justice, of, of equity, of, of fairness, something that uh, I wish our current food system had a little bit more of. Awesome. If folks listening would, would like to connect with you uh, or eat just to, to follow your journey from here, where's the best place to send them? Uh, they can uh, check us out at, um, at uh, ju.st that's our just egg website and good meat is goodmeat.co um and anyone is welcome to email me at josh at ju.st especially if you're looking to start your own company uh in the space you're thinking about how to use your life to try to tackle these big challenges um count me count me as a friend and i'd love to help
very generous of you. I'll put all of that into the show notes. And you mentioned earlier, but for our USA-based friends that are listening, the Just Eggs, which now come in a whole lot of different formats, they can get them at Whole Foods and, and other locations around the country. I just tell them to go to the grocery store. If you just go to the grocery store, look where the eggs are sold, it'll be there. Perfect. Thanks again, Josh, and uh, please enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Simon. Thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive. If you did and you'd like to show your support for the show, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Yes, the full-length videos. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple Podcast app, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple or Spotify. Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show, or questions that you'd like to have answered, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I myself and my team will take note of these comments when planning future episodes. Finally, the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends. Enjoy your week, stay well, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.